Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast examining the scat of popular culture to track down Kuhio, the nine-tailed fox. Today we're talking about the creep of Korean media into American popular culture, part of the phenomenon called Hallyu, which means Korean wave. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer. My Korean name is Lin Mark Drew. I'm Erica Spires, and I tried to find one that most closely symbolized the meaning of my name. So, Choi Young Jun. And I'm Brian Hurt, and my Korean name is Baruch Ben Naftali Ben Chaim. I think. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that sounds right. Introduce yourself, Susie. My Korean name is literally Hyun Jung Oh. And your Americanized name is Susie Oh. Yeah, it has no relation whatsoever. Did you pick it? No, actually, some people that we were living with when we first emigrated from Korea, they just sat around the dinner table and they gave us names. So they were like, you're Harold, you're June, you're Susan, you're Stanley. <laughs> so I was Susan for most of my life until high school when people started calling me Susie. How did you get your Korean name? I was I kept reading about like how to best choose a Korean name. One of the articles I read said, you can just find something that sounds similar to your actual name. But what I tried to do is I know that my name, Erica, means eternal ruler. So I looked up, there were two different names, one for eternal and one for ruler. So I got Youngjun from that. And then my surname is very odd. It's Spires. It probably came from Spear or a very tall person or maybe somebody even who made Spires. I don't know. But the closest I could find in the surnames was something that meant something tall or mountainous. And so I came up with Choi. So there we go. You're illustrating the open-spirited approach. As actually I was working through what we were doing today, I was thinking even more that we need to have a Bong Joon-ho episode later, like we did with our Scorsese. But we would spend so much time, if we did that, talking about just how to get past it being a foreign culture that this episode I'm now looking at as us doing that initial work to be able to talk about those movies as films and not as how do I know if something weird is happening, whether that would be weird to a Korean audience or whether <laughs> like that's the, the fundamental question here. I know we came up with this specifically because Susie, you had kind of done a renaissance research back into all things Korea and seem to know a lot about this. So I thought you'd be great to have on here, but you know, I've been kind of looking to do this with various cultures for film appreciation and just also the weirdness. I guess the films that we looked at today were the easiest for me to get a, a handle on as opposed to some of the other forms, most of which seem to be aimed more at teens, right? If you talk about K-pop, like K-pop is going to be something I'm going to have trouble relating to, not just because it's from a foreign country, but because it's aimed at 12-year-old girls. That's why I had to do a ton of research in order to figure out K-pop. When did you come here to the United States? Like, what was pop culture like that you remember when you were still in Korea? Well, I came here when I was three. So, oh, so you don't remember. <laughs> 
and there wasn't like pop culture. It was still a very poor country. My parents grew up in post-war Korea and it was labeled a third world country. My dad was a minister. We all moved to Queens. Me and my brother grew up in the tri-state area and we didn't really have access to culture except for like what we can sneak through like department stores and like, you know how they sell TVs. We went to those stores and just like watched stuff there because we weren't allowed to watch secular things. Well, it'll get you right down the wrong path. I understand. I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, so that makes sense. In fairness, all that stuff is totally sinful. So not wrong. From high school, say, you were getting a grasp on American culture. When did you then go back and start trying to get a hold of Korean culture? It was like the mid to late 2000s, like the first wave of boy bands and girl bands. They were like very typical, schlocky. It was kind of like the 80s here, like Celine Dion kind of stuff. Every song was like very formulaic. You'll hear this word 사랑해 a lot in songs, like 사랑해, like that. That means love. So it's like, I love you or, you know, whatever. So yeah, (laughs) it was like that. And then the IMF crisis happened. So that was really bad for Korea. So they had to become a little bit more communal, like a little bit more communist, but not in the North Korean way. So basically they invested a lot of money in Korean art. So they allowed more freedom, whereas before they were very strict and they banned American stuff from showing there. Like they had to fill a quota of like a certain amount of Korean things in theaters and stuff like that. So they put a sort of sanction on like American stuff so they can develop their own culture industry. The Korean government, the culture institute or whatever, they send the girl groups and boy groups over here to learn English. Let's provide a little more detail on that. This video that you found will link folks to on the late capitalism of K-pop that I didn't realize before this. What an industry K-pop is. I mean, of course, just like the American pop industry, once people are in it, then their careers are very much controlled. And it's, it's, you know, sort of the opposite of the indie band experience, but almost like a nationalized American idol, like training these kids from a young age and it being just as rigorous as like any other, you know, it seems more rigorous than probably any other sort of training regimen that you would go in for training you for a job. It's like the Olympics is what I saw. Like people who were trained to be gymnasts or something. And there's a bit of a boy band factory that happens in America, but it is just an echo of quite what was happening or is happening in Korea with the K-pop machine. Really something. It is very much like a factory and it feels very commercial. And then like rappers are like selling samples of their voices. And, you know, you just buy a sample, you drop it in a song, nobody even sees each other. Like there's no authenticity. In Korea, all the men have to go to the army. So they're taught to obey and they have like very individual roles and they don't go outside those roles. They're not supposed to. It's a very hierarchical and like lots of boundaries. So they're organized in that way. But the whole schooling system, including the army and like every system that the Korean person is in, because they were in such desperate poverty and like they were bombed like so many times during all those wars. They insisted that everyone had to be number one. 
Whereas here, if you want to be number one, it's sort of like, oh, I want to be number one. So I'm going to work hard and like reach that goal. Then people are like, wow, that's really amazing. You're so ambitious. But in Korea, it's like, you better be number one. There's no other option. And that's why the Korea has the highest suicide rate in the world besides Lithuania. Oh, I didn't know that. The school system is like 24-7. They have these internet cafes and they're study cafes. High school students stay there till like 1 a.m. easily almost every night. So it doesn't matter what you're studying. If you're studying to be a pop star or an engineer, you're going to be working as hard as you possibly can. Everyone gets the same structure. So this girl, Boa, like became a huge sensation in China and Japan. So Japan was like really known as like the Asian superpower. Like everyone knew Japanese stuff like manga and Japanimation kind of was the first big thing here. Japan consumes most media. They are the biggest market when it comes to the K-pop idol industry. Like they oh. love idols like more than us because we're not as likely to worship as the Japanese. They're comfortable with that. I worked in Tokyo for three weeks a few years ago. And even me, who had like the least amount of lines of anybody on stage, pretty much, I had a couple different people who would follow me and like make sure they were waiting for me after the show is done and give me presents or pictures that they had taken. And it was very sweet. And I, of course, liked it because I was only there for three weeks. But I have a friend who's there about six months out of the year now as a conductor. And he said he is really famous there. And he gets stuff all the time. They love their conductors. Korea is the same, but like, oh my God, they're like the Rolling Stones or something like Mick Jagger, you know? So he does these Disney concerts in Japan and it's huge. Like he, you know, big stadiums full of people. And it's funny because here, like people know who he is, but he's not like famous here. And he was talking about this because I did a, a gig with him about a month ago. And he made some joke to somebody about like, well, I'm huge in Japan, but really, I actually am huge in Japan. <laughs> yeah, there's that song, Big in Japan. Tom Waits. I wouldn't have known or necessarily thought that the Japanese would be most excited consumers of Korean music. They occupied Korea in like until 1945. 1910 to 45. Yeah. Korea had to like speak their language and they were like, Koreans were tortured. So they had a lower status for a very long time. But Japan really appreciates aesthetics, like more so than Koreans. They go through a lot of trouble to make sure to preserve beauty in all of their surroundings. Like everything has to be beautiful. I didn't do any homework on Japan. Well, everything I, I know really I got from a, a YouTube about boy bands. I thought the diversion into Japan was because Hallyu is not initially let's get the American market. It was let's spread across Asia and specifically Japan, because as Susie was saying, you know, they were the imperialist power, but also China, because they have a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of consumers. It actually reaching all the way over here is sort of a, a second stage of the wave. I just think it's interesting with the context, like what little I know about the history is to see like how it emerged K-pop with Korean culture after being occupied and having so many years under control of either China or Japan to be able to break through and be like, this is what we do. And for them to be like, yeah, I respect that. And I want to consume that. Is that fair? Now are, are Koreans and their cultural products being seen more with respect 
from countries who once didn't respect Korea? Koreans, they're kind of known for their nationalistic personalities, right? They're pretty much very xenophobic. But Koreans are really big on church. I think they're the highest percentage of missionaries in the world. It's like normal there to be very religious. Which I didn't necessarily see jumping out. We didn't really say these are the films we're all going to watch or something. But we, we came up, we just did some searching of, you know, what are films that have gotten over here? There was definitely a lot of respect and concern for family, the class consciousness, a lot of things involving either orphans or a parent at home that needs my financial support. And so I have to work as hard as I can for that. But not a lot of straight up religious stuff. The the only film that I saw that was in that genre was this Along with the Gods, which was definitely not, well, when you say religious, I'm thinking in the Chicago area, these Korean Christian churches. But what, what do you actually mean? Koreans took the model from Westerners. So they have like Western types of Christianity, which I don't know about because I grew up in a non-denominational religion. They're just very nice and they all hang out together. They go to church camp. Well, I was seeing stuff like that come up in the films. I started watching this one called Psychokinesis last night. And part of it was like this woman had lost touch with her father long ago, but he had only moved out because basically because of debt. Like there was a lot of like who can be together based on what amount of money is available in a way that is, well, foreign perhaps to Western years. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if debt collectors are a problem here. I mean, people like lost their homes and stuff in the 2008 crisis, right? I guess I don't hear too many stories of, and that's why, you know, I never saw my father again. It doesn't seem to follow. People get banished easily in Korea. If you have brought shame upon the family, this is a really huge problem. It's like a central tenet of Korean society that you must show a good face to the public to represent your family. You're not representing yourself. You're representing your family. One thing I was kind of surprised with, because I, I watched Burning. Tell us about that one, Erica. It was interesting. It was a very, very slow burn. I thought it was going to be mostly just like about a love story, a love triangle. It ends up being a mystery in the end, but it doesn't really start to be any sort of mystery for like a good hour, hour and a half. And it's like a two hour and a half movie. There's not a ton of dialogue, beautiful cinematography. It's just like a lot of just creating the mood and helping you like live in that space. In near the beginning of the film, there's a young girl and a guy and they evidently grew up together, but they haven't seen each other for years. And within the first day of meeting him, she takes him to her apartment and they have sex. So there's some nudity and there's definitely like a fairly like not a long sex scene, but like more than I expected. I just had to like wonder if that was normal in Korean cinema and like what that was like, like how normal is that? And is it just in art films kind of like it is here where they'll do extended like a lot of this movie, they had a lot of moments of him masturbating. No, you couldn't see his penis, but you could tell what he was doing. Like they would show his face and they would, you could hear like his belt moving. And so like, it was quite a lot of that. And so I didn't know if that kind of thing was like normal or if it's like what that's seen as within the society. But so I read a little bit, just trying to figure out if that is normal. And it seems like there have been a lot of restrictions that have been taken away from cinema in the last few years. So it allows people to explore themes that they didn't used to explore. Yeah, totally. Supposedly, like 15 years ago, the whole culture industry boom started happening. 
government-sponsored culture stuff. I think it's called like Chebol. Then they lifted the restrictions on American imports of cultural stuff. But yeah, Park Chan-wook, old boy and um, sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance. He's like the most very, very violent, very like sexual. I don't know if you guys saw the, The Handmaiden. Yeah, I watched that on your recommendation, which I barely got through it. It was, again, like Erica's describing Burning, very long with some quite long, not sex scenes, but just weird stuff. Yeah, for some odd reason, they can have like the most extreme violence I've ever seen in cinema, more extreme than than American movies. I wonder if that doesn't extend to television. Maybe there are certain restrictions on television as opposed to film where film just like gets to let it all out. That's a good point. Uh, K-dramas are a lot more like they have a different audience, I guess, or like somewhat different audience, like older women mostly. But like teens are starting to get into that as well. Like a lot of teens actually at my school, my university. That was very strange to find out because I found out from white students about K-dramas. Like I was like, what? Okay. (laughs) So they're like soap operas. But so they yell at each other a lot, like real fights, you know? Oh. It's very part of Korean culture. Hey, we need to stop for a minute because we have a sponsor for this episode. I want to thank Sunbasket for supporting us and for sending me a delicious basket of three meals. I think most of us at this point are trying to reduce unnecessary trips out, trying to avoid sold-out grocery stores. Well, Sunbasket is a perfect and delicious solution for the times we're living in. They deliver the ingredients and recipes for healthy, delicious meals, which is very good because it's lame when it is my turn in our quarantined house to cook and I inevitably am just putting on pasta or frozen fish. No, each week, Sunbasket offers a wide range of recipes for you to choose from. Just this week, I made black bean tostadas Diablo with cabbage slaw and guacamole, which the family thought was great and roasted salmon with miso-glazed eggplant. They also have hosen steak strip lettuce cups with pickled daikon and carrots. Lots of fancy-sounding, good-tasting stuff like that. They let you specify dietary preferences, including paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, vegetarian, and more. And you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. It is super convenient. You can order any recipes from across their menus, skip a week whenever you need to, and Sunbasket facilities have the highest levels of food and employee safety, increasing sanitation frequency above their already very high normal standard in the distribution centers to protect you and your family. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go to sunbasket.com slash pretty and enter promo code pretty at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash P-R-E-T-T-Y. Enter promo code PRETTY at checkout for $35 off your order. And now back to the discussion. I feel like the movies that were on our watch list, I recommended, you know, what we might watch, and I didn't watch all of them. What they all had in common was that I had access to them through dubbing or subtitles, generally subtitles. And I have to feel like there is this whole host of things that because of this connected world we're in, right, they're accessible. You can get them one way or another, but they're not going to be subtitled they were never either intended for a Western audience or no one ever got the idea that anybody in the West was going to pay for it. So you've seen things, right? You, you spoke Korean and you spoke it in the home. You've seen stuff that was never really made for me or something I, I can't consume unless I learn Korean or someone subtitles it. Have you seen things that aren't available 
with subtitles or dubbing? Like, are there movies or TV shows that you can watch that I can't? I don't think so. TV shows more likely because it would be really hard to subtitle them and they go faster. So there's more of them. So it'd be harder. It's really hard to translate. It's like you have to think in a totally different way. But you've seen some of those TV shows? I tried just for education. And the people in my Korean class chose that as their their language requirement because of K-dramas. So they can understand them better. So is it strange to you now, like to see this wave of Korean culture coming here and wondering, are people actually taking it seriously? Or is does it feel like they're going through a phase? Or, or do you think this is a like a, a new time for us to actually integrate it fully into our cinemascope and music as well? I think maybe. I think it's sort of merging. But Korea is still a little bit emotionally behind because of their strict upbringing, and they can't do anything except study. I was the same way. It's funny you should mention, Brian, about the Olympics. If you're doing a sport, you have to aim for the Olympics. So I was like a swimmer, and I was training to be in the Olympics. So it's interesting that Parasite was able to enter into the Academy. Is that right? It was the very first, was it the first Korean film that was nominated for an Academy Award? Which is insane. It's just crazy. Things are political in the eyes of Western people. Like North Korea is like a scary, weird thing. So there's always been that tension. Like people don't know that South Korea is like completely separated. Like the U.S. has the most troops. Like it's like the most militarized border in the world. So yeah, people ask me if I'm North Korea, from North Korea. They don't understand that though. I have to explain to them Ugh. that nobody gets out of North Korea. And they're like, they're still just like suspicious. We have a bit about a, a comic who talks about being a North Korean. And In PK. One of the YouTubes. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think that's the first level ignorance is not knowing the difference. I think the second level ignorance is, is closer to what I had before I learned more, which was assuming that South Korea was more Western than it was because it is a Western ally, right? It's on the right side of the border from and it's a Western ally rather than a communist state or really a totalitarian state. But it really has this very unique Asian culture that, you know, you don't until you take the time to learn about you, you wouldn't know about. And to Erica, you're talking about Parasite. It's not about Korean or South Korean culture writ large, but it reveals so much about the culture through what's going on in the story. And there is the Internet Cafe that that you talked about, Susie, right, where they're forging the documents at one point. And it's like a casino. You don't know if it's night or day in there, right? Because it's you get a sense that it's open 24 hours and you can never see. There are no windows and there's no sunlight. It's yeah. totally like that. You can't tell the difference between day or night. But so you're saying that people in America don't know about Korean culture unless they research it? I don't think it's part of our curriculum, really, in schools. I will tell you that my closest like knowledge of Korea, of course, grow- how do I know most about Korea? It's from watching MASH. It's from Hawkeye and BJ. And that's ancient history. That's not current culture. The Korean War was from 1950 to 1953, which I think was like it lasted half the amount of time that the TV show did. But that's a little, <laughs> a little bit of trivia. Actually, MASH is in many Asian American studies books. It's like supposed to be racist, right? I'm sure that's true. 
my understanding of of mash even from how it was made is that it was really supposed to be an indictment of the vietnam war but no one could get away with doing that so they had to set it during the korean war like there's something baked into there that vietnam and korea are interchangeable that is so offensive that like right from there it's such a from a western standpoint it's hardly worth <laughs> diving into with any amount of you know, being serious what other movies have all four of us watched because uh, maybe it's not that many of them because we've all watched different things we've all seen i guess well do you not want to talk about too much about snowpiercer if we're going to have a separate show dedicated loved snowpiercer i didn't see that recently was that revealing about Korean culture in some relevant way? When I watched Snowpiercer, I felt like it was a good allegory for just the world in terms of wealth disparity. It seemed like it was the same sort of critique that was in Parasite. Right. So Snowpiercer, for people who haven't seen it, is a, call it science fiction or science fantasy, but it's set in some future where the Earth is frozen over and all that remains is one super train that's crossing the continents constantly. And society is arranged by classes from the front to the back of the train. I think this train is fueled by heavy-handed metaphor. I forget exactly <laughs> what makes this train move, but I think that's it. Okay, I've shown too many of my cards on Snowpiercer. I, I didn't love it. I appreciated parts of it. I, I like some of the performances. If I call it science fantasy, I like it more. As science fiction, it's ridiculous. I can see why some people don't like it, for sure. I would say it wouldn't have been made for quote-unquote American audiences a couple decades ago. It's not very kind to capitalism. Yeah, you're only on one train. So it's kind of like Korea, like a small country. And it's like very perilous all the time. And everyone's stuck with each other. It's like very homogenous in the sense that you're all on one train. But it's like completely stratified in the sense that you have these rigid boundaries for seemingly no reason, but everyone's fully thinks that's the reality. So I think like it's identifiable, which is what makes Bong Joon-ho good in terms of cinema. He also does a, an interesting thing with using both Korean actors and American actors. So it immediately makes an American audience be like, I like Tilda Swinton. I'll see this film. And then by way of that, then they are exposed to a different filmmaker that they may have not seen otherwise. Yeah, like that's kind of why I saw it for Tilda Swinton. <laughs> Speaking of trains, I think at least three of us, right, saw a train to Busan. Yes. Did you see that one, Susie? I downloaded it and I watched it by like skipping ahead. So it's a zombie film on a train and it has a lot of the class stuff and it has a lot of the respecting your elder stuff and it has a lot of paranoia about kids being orphaned stuff. The three themes that I picked out before, I thought it was a pretty accessible, the kind of thing that shows you like, it doesn't rely on your cultural knowledge, but it exposes you to a little bit. Of course, it's just mostly about zombies and how do you get through a train when the zombies, you know, you wait till it goes into a tunnel and then it's dark and then you can crawl along the various tricks of getting past the zombies. So I thought for a zombie movie, it was pretty innovative and cool. One thing that's cool about both that and a taxi driver. That was amazing. So one thing I thought was neat about a taxi driver that I think that is similar to Train to Busan is that it has a lot of comedy in it for 
something that's not necessarily a comedy. It delves a lot into comedy. A Taxi Driver in particular, I thought was really very funny at first. We knew it was going to be something serious. And yet the soundtrack going along felt like we were in a Woody Allen film until it didn't. And all of a sudden we're thrust into this very serious film. So that to me is interesting with uh, comedy being, I don't know if, I know we have a very small sample size, but I wonder if that's something that happens in a lot of Korean cinema or entertainment, breaking down a serious subject with comedy. I don't know that I remember that from like The Wailing, for instance, which I didn't see recently, but that thing I just recall being long and dark, you know, just throughout. That particular filmmaker is very art house. It's like a serious guy. I mean, if you're not into scary, I guess, I mean, my husband watched it and he's afraid of a lot of scary movies and he he was all right watching it. So it wasn't like terrifyingly scary, but it was a little thrill ride. Not like lucid dreaming. So Brian and Eric and I tried for the first time this like watch something together over the internet Netflix party. It's a Chrome extension you put in. So then we were on Zoom talking to each other while I was controlling like, you know, pausing the movie or whatever. And it would you know, show on each of their screens. Unfortunately, the movie we picked was this one called Lucid Dreaming, which I guess it was good to see something that was not like Taxi Driver. That is like, this is a new era, I think, in foreign film that for, you know, when I was growing up, if a film got over here at all, it's probably really damn good. Whereas now we have access to all this stuff through Netflix. Like, and I guess this film I was reading about, it was a box office failure. And anyway, Brian, did you have some thoughts about it? I'm right with you on this. I think it's a great sign that we're getting mediocre movies. If we only get good ones, it means we're also missing a lot of good ones, right? Someone's curating this too much and deciding what's important and what's accessible, and we're only getting a very small amount. And if they're being shoveled at us, then yeah, we're going to get some stinkers, but we're also going to get some other ones that maybe we wouldn't have. Just for anyone who wants to do a Netflix party, actually having a movie that is you have to watch in subtitles, makes it a little easier to talk about it. If you can read the dialogue and be commenting, you're not missing the dialogue as it's going on. So I'll just put a plug in for Netflix Party plus Zoom. So that was good. Not a good movie. Not a recommend. But you know what? If it were a really good movie also, then we wouldn't have had as much fun watching it because we would have had to been very quiet. We're not good at being really quiet, are we? And there are lots of things to comment on just about the subtitles, for instance. I mean, the translation issues that you're talking about and also I just idiomatic differences so that, you know, I remember watching a movie that psychokinesis movie and there was a lot of like, gosh, fuck, like putting the words gosh and fuck next to each other. Like those are two different levels of curse word in English where I suppose maybe whatever they were translated from probably went together just fine. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have the F word there. So whatever this was the translation of, who knows? I don't even know what they're meaning because they... I think in one movie that we watched all together is a handmaiden. The Japanese was in yellow and the Korean was in white. So that was interesting that they were going between them in that film. Oh, really? Unless you saw some other version of it than I did. Wait, the, you mean the subtitles were yellow? Yes. I, I didn't notice. So it could make it very clear whether they're speaking Japanese or Korean because it was a exploring the imperialist past. Oh, okay. So could you guys not tell the difference? Between Japanese or Korean? Having it there, uh, yeah, I could tell they sound very different, like very different languages. But I don't know if I just, you know, not having them set side by side and distinguished like that, I'm not sure how much I would have gotten that. 
Oh, that's that's interesting. I did, really didn't notice about the subtitles. Wasn't there a whole issue with Parasite? This outrage by the middle American audience that it wouldn't be presented in a dubbed format. That there is a huge number of people. I don't know if it's a majority, maybe not, who won't watch a movie if they have to sit there and read it. That movie, I think, is a, a really good example of a few things. First of all, the weight of the people behind it to be able to not give in and say, no, we're gonna, this is the movie and you can watch it or, or you can't, but this is what it is. There's also enough English and English is used in interesting ways in that movie that dubbing it really ruins it, right? The wife of the family who owned the house, she uses English every now and then, I think, to try to impress the English teacher to show that she knows how to speak it. It's still subtitled when she talks because she has a heavy accent and maybe some viewers wouldn't know what she's saying. The most prestigious cleaning service is an English term, right? I didn't really notice it that much because Koreans do speak a lot of English. They have English loan words. Yeah, I noticed that quite a few words that were repeated sounded close enough to English to me at times. And I don't know if I'm just like trying to pick that up because I have this American ear that's like, oh, that sounds like what I know. But like there were enough words that came across in the films that I was watching that if it was spoken slowly and it was just a single word or two and I was reading the translation, I'm like, oh, that kind of sounds like it would in English. It's not where it's or like it would in a romantic language. Brian, Eric, I know I put on the list uh, the K-drama stuff. Did you, it was kind of like the K-pop. I couldn't watch any of that for more than 10 minutes or something because it was clearly just not aimed at my demographic on any vector. <laughs> no, I felt like my time was better spent with the films for this particular subject. Just something that I noticed, maybe you can comment then, Susie, that even in some of the films, but definitely in some of the K-drama stuff, the music cues like were very much more cartoony than I would expect in an English thing. That it could be very, just a lot of, like a lot of... <laughs> Just really exaggerated emotional expressions and, you know, just like picture the background sound effects you would hear in a Looney Tunes cartoon. And like we have some maybe like new girl or like there's some extremely twee parts of, of English speaking culture that might have a little bit, but nothing close to what I was seeing here. It was like that was the most jarring thing. There was one in particular, Cinderella and the Four Knights, Knights with a K that I actually watched a whole episode of an hour long episode <laughs> with my daughter. And she was enough close to the target audience that she wanted to go a little further with it. And that one was just, we were bewildered by like the craziness of the soundtrack. I do know what you're talking about because my language partner sends me videos, like YouTube videos that she thinks are really good. She thinks that they're so useful. Like I, I can practice Korean and also like learn stuff, like how to make a, how to tie a scarf or something. She sent videos of like this businesswoman who's like very kind of posh or whatever, very educated talking to her infant and like there was just like the boing sound like in Looney Tunes you're exactly right I didn't know how to really describe it and with like cartoon emojis to emphasize what they were doing so apparently I need to watch Cinderella and the four nights the four knights I had put that's that my takeaway from all this as just a bizarre freaking thing there are a couple different k-dramas that I watched at least like five or ten minutes of and they were just, I think, consistently bizarre in the same way, you know, we didn't even touch on the graphic novel types, which I did re actually read about four of them. 
So this is probably just kind of our older people kvetching about how weird the teens are. But then when you add a jump to another culture, teens always even seem a level weirder, right? It's like not the teens today, but if we were judging the teens in 1910. It's not normal teen weirdness. I was very young when I first, you know, started interacting with like Korean culture and going to Korean markets with my mother in K-Town and Flushing, which is a huge Korean community. Everything was just better and like very colorful. And the designs on everything was were just so great. It was like a circus. The K-pop was terrible back then. Yeah, it hadn't reached the level now. Like the stickers in the photo booths that are like completely encrusted with animals and flowers and stuff, glitter and sparkles. Everything is like that. Very youthful. It's just like the culture feels a lot of times, right? Cute and youthful. And we want that. Even like, I think American women a lot of times go for that. I have a lot of female friends who are grown women who are very into the cute, whatever, makeup carrying case or pen or whatever it is. Wait, you don't bedazzle? I've always been a tomboy. Come on. I do like some of the cute stuff, though. I have to say, I have to walk through Koreatown in New York to get to my physical therapist. And I love going by there. I love seeing what foods are available. I love some of the makeup and face care. They do market very well. And the bright colors and everything definitely make you want to go in and experience that. Well, thanks. Susie, for guiding us on this little bit of cultural tourism here. This, of course, is going to be deeply inadequate. And I hope that folks actually from Korea that might be listening to this are not appalled that this is what we're taking away from this. But it's just a first swipe. Hey, this is a week of watching and listening. And it was really fun. And I have to say, like, in the last few minutes before we started... You had given some notes, Susie, where I was like, oh, I want to know more about that. And so I started reading about Korean history. Now I want to see some documentaries, you know, and I want to look at more films that are historical dramas so that I can understand more of your history. Yeah, I feel like the more I read, the less I knew. Yep. This education clearly showed how much my education had failed me. Thanks, U.S. teachers and (laughs) curriculum. (laughs) Thanks for nothing. I felt literally the same way. Are you guys wanting to do that for another country sometime? Totally. There is no limit to the ignorance that I have that can be revealed (laughs) by other cultures being brought forward. So I can watch a bunch of Greek movies and like, oh, it's more than Zorba. It's a great way to feel like a complete idiot. But hopefully people realize that we know we're idiots and we're not trying to be experts and that we're just trying to learn and open up the world, hopefully a little bit. I Agree. And I sure think that anybody who wanted to give themselves a one week or couple week crash course in another culture that they're not that familiar with, it's a wild ride. There's a lot of incidental learning, right? We we could have seen six other films and gotten a different impression than the ones we saw, but we, we saw the ones we saw. And when we got the impression we got, and I think it was worth talking about. And Mark, I did like so much research on K pop rappers. Like I I know all of them and like their best songs and their best albums and rap battles. Like I I can tell you everything, but anyway. Recommendations? I put them all on a YouTube playlist. Yes, we'll share that with the audience. I don't want to. It's like a very political thing. If I like fans are very protective about their idols. So if I say something like because I'm not a proper fan, like I don't belong to a fan community. I'm not a good fan. Like they, they're very morally outraged about that. I think 
gatekeeping and fandom is just the worst. Fortunately, I think in the science fiction community, there's a huge backlash to it. And people come down really hard on gatekeepers, which is great. What I want to know is how Korea Lace claim to the letter K, because there have got to be these Kenyan pop groups, and they want to be K-pop, but Korea already took the letter. All these pop bands from Kansas, Kazakhstan, Kansas. <laughs> Kentucky. Kansas pop. Kentucky pop. So, I mean, you can look at the playlist. It's very, I added a lot to it. Yes, I will add that to the show notes at prettymuchpop.com. And we're going to say goodbye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.